Well, on Friday uh, of this week, we, Karen and I said our goodbyes to uh, an 88-year-old World War II veteran named Dick Brubaker. Uh, Dick was married to Karen's mom. It's kind of a wonderful story, actually. The Brubaker family and Karen's family, they all grew up together. Karen's dad and Dick Brubaker were best friends for many years, worked together at Dow Chemical. They, they uh, hunted and fished together. And then in 2000, Karen's dad passed away, some of you may recall. And then uh, actually it was the next year that Dick's wife, Mildred, passed away. And then a couple of years after that, Dick and Lois were married at uh, 78 and 73 years old. And it was just the cutest wedding you ever saw. <laughs> Especially the kiss. <laughs> but uh, for the past 10 years, they were married. And for the past 10 years, I've sat and listened to many, many, many war stories. Dick Brubaker saw a lot of action in World War II. He fired his weapon many, many times. The war actually ended for him in January of 1945 when, after one too many nights in a snowy foxhole, he was, he was taken off to England because his feet were hopelessly frostbitten. Then he came home and worked for 40 years with Karen's dad at Dow Chemical. It's a little company up in Midland, Michigan. Maybe you've heard of it. They make bare aspirin and scrubbing bubbles. But I've heard those stories from Dick so many times. They were always fascinating. It was like a live taping of a band of brothers just listening to him. And every time he'd tell them, because many of them I heard more than once, there was something new that was revealed. And in the last couple of years of his life, I started to see something I had never seen before. And that was the tender side of his stories. Because there would be times that he would actually tear up as he talked about losing some of his band of brothers in action. And he would also actually tear up at times thinking about the enemy. And he would say those boys were just doing what they were told to do. And it, it was an amazing thing to watch this evolution of his thought in the later years of his life. And I'll never forget one thing he said to me just a few months ago. He said, uh, you know, when we went out there, we really didn't know much of anything about the Jews being exterminated by Hitler. They didn't really know about that. He said he'd look over across the way at those German boys who were firing back at him, and he said sometimes... We didn't always know why we were fighting that war. It would be tough to stay in the battle, wouldn't it? If you lost track of exactly what you were fighting for. Well, the Bible says that we're engaged in a season of conflict with the enemy of Jesus Christ, the devil. This is a real battle. This is not an imaginary battle. This is not a battle of the mind. 
This is not a battle for cultural values. This is a real battle with real weapons and with real casualties. And so last week I started a series called Taking Babylon. And as a concept, the the idea behind the series that I feel motivated to bring is that Babylon is a symbol in the Bible of the seat of the enemy, the seat of Satan himself. And in order to be victorious over an enemy, you have to go all the way to Babylon. You have to go all the way, and you have to conquer the seat. You have to conquer the headquarters. You have to go all the way. And over these last few months here at the Vineyard, we've been enjoying a season of of power and blessing. And we've seen things that have been amazing, amazing work of the Lord. And uh, while we haven't won all the battles, we've been seeing significant victory in the lives of people. And um, I know, as I said last week, that maybe some of us are ready to let up on that a little bit and go back to some gentler things. Can't we just talk about the love of God for a few months or how incredible it is to be his sons and daughters, all of which is true. But the answer is no. The answer is no. And as much as that would be easier, it would be wrong. Because we're going all the way to Babylon. We're going to press into Babylon. And so as a series, what I started to do last week and will continue to do for a total of eight weeks is to try to give you a sequential explanation from the Bible about what this battle is, how to be equipped to fight it effectively, and also want to give time in each of our gatherings to invite the Holy Spirit to come and do whatever fighting he has in mind on our behalf, whatever rescuing has to happen. And so today I'd like to take just a few minutes to remind you what we're fighting for. Because it's hard to stay in the battle if you don't know what you're fighting for, right? And uh, I'd like to take a, a few minutes just to share with you what's at stake in this battle. And what's at stake, what, what we stand to lose if we don't fight. So for our passage today, I'd like for you to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you're newer to the Bible, thank you for being here. Um, I'll put it up on the screen behind me if you can't find it, but there's a very useful tool in the front of your Bible called the Table of Context. Uh, contents, and, and it will, uh, will show you right where that is. But Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, finally, so he's finishing this letter, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It is the plan of God, beloved, for us to be strong, not to be weak, to be tossed about by every doctrine, every idea, every whim of comfort in our hearts. But it is the plan of God for us as believers to be strong, to be strong and to stand. And he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he's saying that just because it isn't against flesh and blood doesn't mean it's not a real battle. It would be easier to fight if it were against flesh and blood, wouldn't it? But it's in a different realm. But it's in a realm that is just as real as the flesh and blood. 
And he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Well, we'll get to other dimensions of this passage, including what it means to effectively wear this armor, how to do that later on in the series. The portion of the passage that I'd like for us to consider today is where it says that if we fight this fight in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to stand our ground. I think it's important for us to just ask the question, well, what is our ground? What are we fighting for? Who wins if we fight and win? Who loses if we don't fight and lose? What, what's really at stake here? I guess is the question I'd like for you to think about. I'd like to start with the most obvious. The eternal souls of billions of men and women. Listen, at its core, at the core of this battle in which we are engaged, is the battle to rescue those who are perishing without Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their life. That's what's at the base of the battle. That's what's at the center of the ground that we're fighting for are the eternal lives of billions of men and women. Because the Bible is very clear. The Bible says that this isn't all there is. The Bible says that after we die, we will face one of two certain realities, heaven or hell. This is what the Bible says. I mean, we're going with the Bible here, right? We're trying not to make stuff up as we go along. We're just, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that after our bodies are finished, after our time on earth is complete, we will face one of two certain realities, heaven or hell. And that a, a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives is the only, absolutely the only thing that will make the difference between the one or the other. That knowing Christ as Savior regardless of anything else about our lives, will usher us into heaven. Missing Christ as Savior will guarantee a certainty of hell. This is what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Paul said there is one mediator between man and God. And that's the man, Jesus Christ. There's only one. Make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. And when the church ceases to be a rescuing army, then people go to hell. Did you hear me? When the church ceases to be a rescuing army, then people go to hell. We live in an age of pluralism and relativism. What that means is, as a pluralistic society, we entertain all kinds of notions and ideas about what happens after we die. And the world offers a variety of explanations and a variety of ways of dealing with that reality. And the world offers a variety of religions in order to deal with this. That's called pluralism. Relativism is the concept that you know, what's good for me may not be what's good for you. Well, you know, sure, it's good for me, but 
It's relative to me. It's relative to my life. You know, I don't know what's good for them. Well, the reality is that some things are neither plural or relative. They're absolute. Some things are neither plural or relative. They are absolute. Have you ever flown in an airplane? Anybody ever flown in a commercial? No, just seven of you. Seriously? I would have thought it would have been much higher. And you're strapped into the plane, and you're strapped into a plane with a pilot or a set a crew who are directing this plane, presumably to your safety, right? And you better be really glad that they're neither pluralistic or relative, but they're absolute. Pluralism? Well, hey, Jeff, we could probably put this thing down about anywhere, couldn't we? Let's fly over the Walmart. I see a space right there next to the cart corral. Maybe we could put her down there. I mean, do we have plural options here? It's rel- I know a lot of pilots like to use the big, long runway thing. But, you know, I'm not that kind of pilot today. I'm feeling like I'd like to park closer to Walmart. Aren't you glad that pilots are not that way? They're very absolute. They're very, they, it's got to go right there, right then, at that moment in that way. There's not a lot of room for argument here. Because not everything is plural or relative. The church in America has in so many respects given away its evangelistic fire to pluralism and relativism. And you know what? The church in America is not growing. It's just moving. You say, oh, what about this church and that church? They're like 7,000, they're 9,000. What about that church in Texas with 40,000 people? C. Peter Wagner used to say, he said, the church is no longer a fisher of men, but a keeper of the aquarium. It's just moving the fish around. The church has backed out of its fight for souls of the lost and exchanged it for a brilliant marketing plan to attract an increasing share of the market of already Christian people. The Bible says in Luke 19.10, Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He did not say for the Son of Man came to captivate and keep entertained those who are found. At the essential core of the battle we are called to fight is the rescue of lost souls through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's why we were led to start this church more than 20 years ago, was to look first for the lost, and then find some seats for the wandering. But Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He said he didn't call to come, the right, call, come to call the righteous to repentance, but he came to call the unrighteous to repentance. And we are engaged in a battle for the real eternal souls of very real people. And it's easy to lose sight of that. This is a very real battle with very real consequences. And we are kind of at a place of our culture where we're saying something like, you know, some people... They want to do the Jesus thing. Some people, they don't want to do the Jesus thing, but that's cool. 
let me guarantee you this. There is nobody who's going to want to do the hell thing. Did you hear that? There is nobody who is going to want to do the hell thing. And this is why we are in this battle. There are real people waiting for you to decide whether or not you are going to fight for them. That's the ground. That's the center of the ground. We're also engaged in this battle for the quality and the impact of your own life in the here and now. I mean, you're living one life. You only get one, right? You only get one. The quality and impact is determined by your level of involvement in the battle with Jesus Christ against his enemy, Satan. When I say the quality of your own life... I'm not talking about the comfort of it. I'm talking about the true quality of it. How many of you have ever experienced moments in your life that neither money nor power could buy? You know those moments I'm talking about? And it's quality. And it's irrespective of the American dream. In fact, in most cases, you're completely removed from it, aren't you? You're watching a sunset. You're holding a grandchild. You have your spouse in your arms. You have a moment with the Lord, a profound epiphany with the Lord. This is quality living, yeah? We wear ourselves out trying to fill our coffers with stuff to anesthetize us from the pain of the not quality living. If you look at the common weapons of the enemy, you'll see that he's committed to stealing quality from you. Think about it. Since the the enemy cannot determine the number of days of your life, that's only for God to determine. Since the enemy cannot determine, he cannot steal your life, he will do everything he can to rob you of the quality of the days of your lives. And if you think about his tools, greed, lust, fear, suspicion, and the list goes on. These are the common tools of the enemy to try to rob us of the quality of our lives. And what about the impact of our lives? What's going to be left when you're done? Is there going to be a foot? You're leaving a footprint. What kind of print is it? Who's in your footprint? Who's in your footprint? Here's what I mean by that. We're also fighting for the next generation, the life of the next generation. We're here today, each and every one of us here today, worshiping Jesus because of many generations before us who faithfully engaged themselves in the battle for our souls. for hundreds of years. Some gave their lives to continue to worship Jesus, to continue the heritage of faith that we now freely enjoy. This is part of the battle. We're not just fighting this for ourselves in the here and now. These infants that we dedicated today, hello. I want you to think about the general degradation of morality that so many of us have seen in our own lifetimes. This is the result of what this is the this is what happens when people stop fighting for righteousness. 
extend, take the line that you have seen. In many cases, it's an exponential line. The line of the degradation of morality in our society. Extend that 20 years from now, 30 years, 50 years. Why, why should you fight? Why should you get in this battle? Because of the next generation. Who's in your footprint? We're fighting this for 276 Nigerian schoolgirls kidnapped by terrorists to be sold into slavery. That's why we're fighting. You're saying, so wait a minute. You mean if I get involved in the fight here in middle-class America, it's going to have an impact on 276 Nigerian schoolgirls? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me tell you why. Logistically, if you get in the battle, if you get in the battle and the church becomes the church, it becomes a sacrificially generous organism. And the affluence in which, with which we cover ourselves in this country will be spread to Nigeria, will be spread to India, places in South America. That's just logistically. But at a much deeper level, much deeper level, the reason that this makes a difference is because you are fighting the enemy who is a finite enemy. He's a finite source. The devil is not infinite as God is infinite. That's called dualism. That's not Christianity. The devil is finite. I'll go over that next week and learn knowing your enemy. But the devil is finite. And so when we engage him in battle, he is less available to do the works of evil in other parts of the world. Does that make sense, just mathematically, to a thinking people? And when we say, oh, you know, we're good, we're comfortable, we sing our songs, we do our dance, we give away our sodas, here we go, hey, praise Jesus. And if we settle for that, and don't get engaged in the battle for souls and the deliverance of his people then we just leave the enemy free with his resources to pile up in focused places. It is amazing to me how, how much evil can reside in one person. Karen and I recently watched the movie 12 Years a Slave. Whew. One of the most difficult movies I've ever watched. It was not just because of its graphic parts. I'm good at turning my head away from graphic cinema, but because of the portrayal of such ruthless evil against a people. But is that really possible? The answer is yes. But when we fight the enemy, when we fight the enemy in our arena of battle, then we make him less available to intensify his evil in the lives of individuals. Does that make sense? So we're fighting. We're fighting for the next generation. And if, if we don't take the fight all the way to Babylon, listen, then Babylon will come for your kids. One more thing. We are fighting for the manifestation of the glory of God in the world. Last week I told you why is God waging this war. Showed you so much scripture about how he's just spraying his glory around. We're fighting for that. The world needs the display of the glory of God. And the church in America has largely lost the attention of America 
because of this. Because so much of what the church is in America can be easily explained. Easily explained. As look at what that clever guy or those clever people can do. Look at how they put that music together that people like and how they have all these programs to draw people. And so much of the church can be explained. But if you read the book of Acts, the reason the church was relevant to culture was because it couldn't be explained. The power of God was coming and doing the inexplicable. When we're engaged in the battle, then we have something that can't be explained. As long as the church can be explained to society, society is not going to be interested. I don't blame them. You don't have time for this if this is all there is. So little of the church is engaged in the power of God. I mean, the parts of the church that are charismatic, Pentecostal, kingdom-oriented, however we would describe ourselves, we're such a small part, we're, we're like an appendage. And the book of Acts says that's not the appendage. That's the heart of the church. That's the nature of the church, to be engaged in the battle with a demonstration of his power. And then the world will be interested again. This is the job of the church, is to manifest the glory of God. When we cease to manifest the glory of God, the world dies around us. You know, as a biology major in college, one of the most interesting concepts in all of nature for me is the respiration of plants. Of all the things that could fascinate a biology major, I just could never get enough of this one. And I was thinking about it this week as I was sitting out on my porch and watching all the leaves come again. Isn't God faithful to bring those leaves back? And what are those leaves doing? Well, those leaves are, are sucking in our carbon dioxide. We're generating carbon dioxide at a pretty massive rate right now. This room is being filled with carbon dioxide. Don't, t- don't exhale one more time. Every time you breathe in oxygen, you grab a bunch of junk off your blood and you throw carbon dioxide back into the air. Well, anybody with claustrophobia, you're having a real... <laughs> I just, I just got to go for a walk. But the brilliance of God is that he's created these leaves that say, I'll take that carbon dioxide, thank you very much. I will photosynthesize that carbon dioxide, and I will give you back oxygen. Woo! Breathe! Breathe! Now, that's, it doesn't even stop there, because trees need a rest, right? And the leaves die, and they fall off, yes. What are we going to do all winter? What are we going to do all winter? We'll say, where do we get our winter oxygen? We suck it up from the southern hemisphere. Because it's in God in His brilliance, down below the equator, all the leaves are coming out and they're making oxygen. And it's just because of equilibrium, just sucking its way back up here. Don't feel bad about using up their oxygen because they just got done you. They're going to be using up ours too, all right? Is this fascinating? Say, make a point, Tom. Say, the line at Cracker Barrel is not going to be short today. Make your point. Here's the point. If the leaves ever stop doing their job, we die. It is the job of the church to manifest the glory of God in worship. 
It is the job of the church to manifest the glory of God in kingdom reality in its presence. When the church stops doing that, people die. That's what's at stake. Now you know what you're fighting for. Now you know what you're fighting for. I was on the wall this morning, and it was so cool. I was praying, God, what do you want to do today? And I got this picture. Sorry if you're new. I don't have time to explain what all that means. But <laughs> I got this thing from the Lord. And he said, I have shooters on the wall. Never heard that before. Shooters. Sharpshooters. On the wall. I said, Lord, I'm, I'm going to need more than that. <laughs> the explanation was, some of you brought your friends today. They're not really your friends. They're killing you. I don't mean people. Some of you brought your addictions. Some of you brought your wounds. Some of you brought things that are going on in your life that need to be killed. You came to church with your friends. Thank you. God has sharpshooters on the wall today to take them out. Would you like to experience that? And then please come. I don't know who you are. I don't know who would respond to such a thing. It says, I want God to take something out of my life. Just come up here right now. I'm not going to ask you what it is. You're saying, I connect with that. I got something that has to go out of my life. And you're just presenting yourself to the Lord and say, take a clean shot, Lord. Just come. If that stirs you, just come on up. It's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. You say, I've prayed a prayer like this before and it's still there. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Just, just, you're just saying, Lord, I want you to take a clean shot. Keep coming. I just want you to take a clean shot. Now, right there where you stand, you just have your time with the Lord. And hold still. Just hold as still as you can. Invite the Lord to take a clean shot. This is you and him now. There's no pastor or priest who can stand between you and God. This is you and him. I'm just delivering the word of the Lord. You're responding to it. Say, Lord, I'll hold still. Take a clean shot. Boom.